So I would say in talking about this episode, I I almost argued that we shouldn't do it because I really couldn't state X caused Y, which is why we see Z, right? I couldn't do that in this episode. And I wanted to keep it anyways because I think it helps highlight where we are still so far behind in medicine. We need to do better and we need to do better by having more clarity, more vision, and more research. We're Lane and Sharis, two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. This podcast is focused on using science to understand the parts of us that are unknown but impact us every day. Our brains affect the way we think, feel, act, and even understand the world. But what we don't realize is that so much of it is happening on autopilot. By learning more about how our brains work, we can use that knowledge to regain control of our minds and become happier, healthier people while positively impacting others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast. On the podcast today, we are talking about mania. And just to clarify things, mania for us might feel loosely related to the socially used term crazy. But now there are actions that can be caused by mania that don't always seem as ridiculous. For example, just because somebody gambles away their rent money or might be feeling paranoid like people or someone or everybody is out to get them, while those are actual examples of someone with mania, it doesn't mean that you are manic if you feel that way or do those things. Because essentially, just like all the mental disorders that we're covering in this season, there's certain criteria involved in order to know exactly what's going on. And for us, we like to look at the brain. So what exactly is going on for someone with mania? Let's talk about it. This is the Neuroscience of Mania. Before we get into what's going on in your brain, let's talk about how prevalent this is. We're covering a variety of diagnoses this season, and I would say this is definitely low on the prevalence, although there's some argument as to how common it is or is not. The variance is coming through multiple sources reporting between 1% and about 4% of the population. That's a pretty low number, actually. Quite small, for sure, yes. especially compared to depression, anxiety, exactly. even autism. Absolutely. And there's reasons for that that we'll get into. Mental Illness Policy is a site that states it's an unbiased information for policymakers and media, and it states 2.3 million Americans, or about 1% of the population, but the National Library of Medicine for the National Institute of Health cited an article from 2022, and that state's prevalence is 4% found equally regardless of individual's sex. About two-thirds of people with bipolar have a close relative with bipolar or with depression. And one of the reasons that it is very likely a low number is A, less common, but also B, this is argued to be one of the most undiagnosed or missed diagnosis in mental health, specifically because with bipolar, we have a tendency to see depression. And depression is often the symptom that people come in for treatment of. So bipolar and the mania side often get missed. 
this is sounding very similar to ADHD. Because I know on that episode, we'd mentioned just how misdiagnosed it is, mostly because of the criteria that people come in with. Absolutely. And And recognizing, yeah, that they're symptoms in a way are very easily could be something else. Exactly. And that one's the exact opposite of bipolar, right? Where bipolar is underdiagnosed and therefore missed. ADHD is overdiagnosed and therefore miss the misdiagnosis we have worldwide, no question. Gotcha. So kind of two different sides. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, would you clarify for me as well? Because I know this episode is on mania and we're speaking of mania as this experience that you're going to tell us more about, Mm -hmm. but I'm also hearing you mention things like bipolar. Can you clarify real quickly just the difference between those or how bipolar fits into mania? Well, let's talk about mania colloquial and clinically. And within clinical, we'll get into the diagnosis that come with mania. How does that sound? Sure, sure. Sounds great. So with kind of thinking colloquially of mania or manic, I feel like we have less representation or less common vernacular around this, right? For the more, I'm going to argue, socially acceptable and or common diagnosis of anxiety or depression or even ADHD, we have terminology for them in society, non-clinical words to kind of describe those sort of feelings or hypothesis around that diagnosis without quite diagnosing yourself, please don't, you know, but for mania, we have less of that. We have like some just around being manic, but less on specifically bipolar because we're seeing that cycling. So we have common colloquial examples of depression, but less on mania. One of the best ones I could come up with was honestly Tony Stark which is a character that does not meet criteria for narcissism, if you look in the DSM, interestingly enough, even though in the movies they state he does, they're wrong, but he does very much meet a lot of criteria for not sleeping, being pulled into something and not being able to pull himself out of it, uh, taking absolutely unnecessary risks. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I would argue he meets the criteria for mania. We also see a example of this in the Sopranos specifically where a character is even flushing their medication that they're taking for it because of how manic they're feeling and how intense they're feeling right gotcha that almost like dramatic action or dramatic feelings in a way is sort of what it is and I guess in a way the colloquial experience could be a little bit of what we call crazy a little but I bet that the clinical experience is going to tell us why crazy may not be very accurate exactly and we kind of use mania or maniac like I feel like a maniac right that's I feel like a crazy person Mm -hmm. you're 100% right whereas mania the clinical version is different within this category clinicians would look for a couple of different things they would look at if this was a manic episode or if it was a hypomanic episode So mania is a period of abnormally and persistent elevated expansive or irritable mood and increased goal-directed energy. Last at least one week, present most of the day, nearly every day. And it's got to come with a couple of these things. Inflated self-esteem, a lack of a need for sleep, more talkative or pressured speech, flights of ideas or racing thoughts, distractibility, increased goal-directed activity. I must do the thing. Excessive involvement in activities with painful consequences, gambling away your rent money. Mm. And this has got to be sufficiently severe enough to cause a marked impairment in life, work, school. And specifically for bipolar one, could necessitate hospitalization to prevent harm. Or it could come with psychotic features, i.e. everyone is out to get me. Mm. 
Yeah. Hypomania is a period of abnormally persistent, elevated, or expansive irritable mood and increased activity Last about four consecutive days, present nearly all day, every day. Also comes with that inflated self-esteem, lack of need for sleep, pressured speech, racing thoughts, distractibility, increased goal-directed behavior, excessive involvement in painful consequences. However, hypomania is not severe enough to cause major issues in life, work, or school, specifically not severe enough to necessitate being hospitalized. And if there's any psychotic features at all, then it is mania, not hypomania. Interesting. That's already wild to think about because thinking of just how misdiagnosed this disorder is, it's now also sounding like part of mania could be that you feel all these things and you do all these things and you're acting quote unquote crazy, but it's not bad enough to need to go to the hospital. So it's probably not diagnosed or caught. Easier to miss. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're really looking at, is this hyper? Is this hypo? Has there ever been a depressive episode? And this is how we assess, is this bipolar 1, which is the hospitalization or psychosis? Or is this bipolar 2, which is not hospitalization or psychosis? Or if it is cyclothymic disorder, and that's experiencing this kind of symptomology without meeting the full criteria to be called an episode. So one of those criteria is essentially missed. Maybe you're not feeling it for as long or you're not feeling it as intensely. Cyclothymic disorder is also likely found with a comorbid for ADHD, according to the DSM-5. When we're talking clinically, we're looking for a lot of different things. We're looking for bipolar 2 is more hypomanic episode, but however, this is not bipolar light because generally the depression is more severe and for a longer period of time. Mm. Bipolar 1 is more manic or psychotic. Gotcha. And interestingly, in talking about the colloquial versus clinically, I have found both often get confused colloquially with borderline personality disorder. So people have talked about somebody in their life, potentially referring to them as quote-unquote crazy, and talked about the sort of push, pull, I love you, I hate you, and then called them bipolar. And I've seen that a lot where they're very different diagnoses. They both have a cycle to them, which is why I think they get mixed up. And bipolar is more commonly a known term than borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. However, borderline personality disorder is more of a cycle of intensity around relationships, whereas, we've, as we've just discussed, bipolar is more severe ups and severe downs. Right. Like all of us go through some ups and downs in life. This is way up high and way down low. Gotcha. This is wild too, hearing just even more diagnoses that we might be familiar with. You're saying that all of these different things are essentially diagnoses that can come under the umbrella of mania. Is that right? When we're looking at mania, we want to assess for bipolar 1, bipolar 2, just a manic episode, cyclothymic disorder, and there technically is one more called unspecified, which is often a diagnosis that you could get in a hospital where they don't have enough to fully assess you. Mm, so okay. yes, we're looking at what's causing mania, what's along with mania, and what does that mean for the person? Gotcha. That makes sense. And also makes sense why mania is our focus for this episode and not just bipolar because we have already covered the depression side. If you haven't been able to catch that, that was the first episode of season two. Give it a listen. It's a really great episode. 
One part I always enjoy about these podcasts is learning about the history of them, specifically when we first kind of learned about these disorders, because, man, there have been differences between mm -hmm. the ones that we've learned about so far. Absolutely. So, and when I reference who we call Caveman Joe, it's more so just looking at the history of, did we know it as far back as when we were in caveman times, cave people times? Mm -hmm. Or did we learn it? In the last 100 years or so. Where or are we? in the last 50. <laughs> or in the last 50, yes. Where are we at for mania? We are further back than I thought we were going to be, honestly. I expected this one to be somewhat more recent. Nope. We are hanging out with Hippocrates again. Whoa. So, so this was something as also documented by Hippocrates, who documented depression and anxiety. He, Hippocrates also documented extreme moods, high lows and high highs, specifically energized, excited, though thought to be caused by too much yellow bile. <laughs> sure. I apologize if I mispronounce this. Eratos of Cappadocia was a first century Greek physician, and he stated that people could have a mood spectrum with extremes on either end and is actually the first person who stated this was a problem with the brain. However, Plato also came in around this time and stated in his writing that these were two types either derived from the body or from the divine. We start to get some more specifics around 1850, however. There were some French doctors and some German doctors all separately documenting what they were seeing as these extremes. And specifically, Emile Kraepelin was a German psychiatrist who stated this was manic depressive insanity became an official mental health diagnosis, however, in 1980, then known as manic depressive. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah, I would not have guessed that it would go back as far as like Hippocrates time. That yeah, is that wild. surprised me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting what we take notes of. <laughs> that we keep in our history. So funny. Uh, another part I always like to ask in these episodes, specifically just because we are talking about so many mental disorders, is the importance of looking at why we're focusing on neuroscience. And considering over the past few episodes for this season, the answer has been pretty similar. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess this one might also be the same. Absolutely is. Tell us what it is again. Basically, nothing's changed since Hippocrates and maybe something <laughs> should. Concept. Uh, to put that more professionally stated, <laughs> Harrison, Geddes, and Turnberg state this well by simply saying bipolar disorder is a leading cause of global disability, quote, its biological basis is unknown and its treatment is unsatisfactory. Sophia Frango also basically says this exact same sentence. However, Harrison, Geddes, and Turnberg go on to state that we're really treating this with therapy and psychiatry and basing, as we do many things in mental health, with criteria developed two centuries ago. Mental health in general is based on a cluster of symptoms rather than anything we find in biology, i.e. have biological tests to confirm. I don't know if you've ever seen an episode of House MD. Mm -hmm. They have tons of theories. They're often super confident on them. However, then they test for things and find out they're wrong, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's the the process it's what you do absolutely it's literally a part of diagnosis is guess and check for lack of a better terminology mm -hmm. however that's harder to do in mental health so for bipolar we're treating this with quote drugs discovered serendipitously several decades ago 
Bipolar disorder typifies this unsatisfactory state of affairs. Its name has changed, however what we see, how we diagnose it, and how we treat it has barely changed at all. Welcome to season two of the Brain Blown Podcast. <laughs> Seeing a common theme here. Clark and Sahakarin state that part of the major importance is that, quote, bipolar disorder continues to be frequently diagnosed as major depressive disorder in individuals without a clear history of manic episodes, with the consequence that patients may be maintained on suboptimal medication regime until their bipolar diagnosis is noticed. So that sounds like essentially what's happening is people are getting diagnosed for depression when it turns out it's actually bipolar. And often getting treated and or medicated for without necessarily knowing that there could be more going on. Yes, absolutely. Again, this falls into the category of this is severely underdiagnosed and often misdiagnosed. Mm. Logan and McClug state, quote, the mood stabilizing therapeutics of effect of lithium, assault, and valproate, an anticonvulsant, were discovered by accident. Again, that's that serendipitous that Clark and Saha Keen were stating. Also state, and in the absence of significant mechanical understanding of bipolar disorder, while current treatments are generally effective for the reversal of manic episodes and preventing future episodes, these medications have limited, if any, efficacy on their own in the acute treatment of depressive episodes. Moreover, standard antidepressant medications used either as monotherapies or in conjunction with mood stabilizers and antipsychotics are generally ineffective for treating depressive episodes, which may induce mood switching in a subset of patients with rapidly cycling bipolar disorder. So what they're saying is we're treating mania not well, we're treating depression not well, and you mix the two together and we're treating the patient not well. Oh boy. Exactly. Coupled with the fact that, honestly, medications for bipolar can have very harsh side effects. And that, in between the loss of Honestly, what most people will state is a very good feeling of mania. It makes this diagnosis also the most least likely for a person diagnosed with it to follow the needed treatment to manage it. Mm. So we're dealing with something that is misdiagnosed, that is not treated terribly well, oftentimes can get misdiagnosed, given medication for, this is something I didn't learn about until after I was partway into my clinical practice, was we can see somebody think it's depression, refer them to a psychiatrist. If the psychiatrist doesn't make sure to rule out for mania, they can give them depression medication, which can spike a manic episode. Problems, right? So we're just causing a mess all over the place. And in short, what we have is a Band-Aid. And it's a Band-Aid developed two centuries ago. People with this diagnosis deserve better. Wow. Absolutely. Well, you know, maybe instead of continuously playing this guess and check game when we know it's not working, maybe we can start looking to other places to see if there's more to learn, if there's more information that we can get. And we will look at that after a short break. Up next, we are diving into the brain, but I'm wondering what this is going to be like just because of the similarities that we're seeing so far from ADHD. Now, ADHD, I know we said was the opposite. It is the most overdiagnosed one, but it also seemed like the reason it was was because we would see so many different symptoms and then make the assumption 
and that assumption was wrong. So I'm wondering if there are similarities here for mania, where we're seeing symptoms, we're seeing things happening, and yet again, our guess is wrong. So very much guessing correctly there. (laughs) Does that mean that things are similar for the brain? Yeah, I think Harrison Geddes and Turnberg stated this best by saying, quote, our understanding of bipolar disorder remains frustratingly limited. End quote. (laughs) Great. So much like ADHD, you're spot on. We've got some evidence, honestly, but it is all over the place and very little of it is confirmed. Okay. There's a lot of also research struggles in here. So as we talked about in ADHD, we're seeing some limiting factors. Now, this diagnosis isn't as recent as ADHD, so that helps. However, it is also nowhere near the level of misdiagnosed, i.e. we call a whole bunch of people ADHD. Some of them have it. Mm-hmm. But with ADHD, the symptomology echoes so many other things that's ripe for mistakes. That's why it's the most misdiagnosed diagnosis we have. Gotcha. Bipolar is the other direction because it's often commonly missed. However, there's this additional complication of a similarity to ADHD when maybe we should be asking if we have this right in the first place. Mm. But more on that after our second break. So let's talk about what we do have because I'm happy to present all the research that I've read and I read an overwhelming amount of research for this episode because I was trying to find something that clicked together. (laughs) But let's get into what we've got. To cite Harrison, Gettysburg, and and Turnbridge, we do have evidence for seeing variances in both brain structure and connectivity. We also see changes chemically, changes with mitochondrial function, great variances with circadian rhythms, some adjustment to neurotransmitters. But, quote, it remains difficult to integrate these diverse findings and to disentangle causative changes from those that are secondary to the disorder and its treatment i.e we're seeing a lot we don't know why we're seeing it we can't connect it all together oh boy but let's discuss what we've seen and what's been researched yeah and as you dive into that too i'm curious this season has also had similarities in that instead of talking about specific areas of the brain We've more so talked about connections Mm -hmm. or pathways in where the areas are connected or even like the emails and the DMs that are being sent through these pathways. Absolutely. Is that going to be similar for this episode? Yes. Which is, I mean, to be fair, we're talking in this season a lot about diagnoses, right? And Mm -hmm. diagnoses are potentially a thing is causing multiple things to fail. And we're talking about very complex things that we see in individuals, right? Right. We're talking about more than just behavior per se. Mm -hmm. We're talking about emotions, cognition, behavior, sleep, et cetera. Yes. So yes, one of the first things that is discussed much like ADHD is that variance in neural networks, um, also discussing variance in brainwaves. Right. So... Dasara et al. are really looking at the neural networks, much like we talked about with ADHD. Similar thought here. We're seeing neural networks that help generate perception and behavior. So an example of this is there are studies looking at the outer layer of the cerebrum. That's the topmost part of your brain. And areas deep within the brain having a shared activity of neurons, such as the area impacted by scent and the area we think of as recording memories right that can be connected and this can also connect to your prefrontal cortex so that you can figure out where you are and how to get home okay that's an example of essentially a neural network doing three 
different parts of the brain to give you one very simple thing. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So this is a choir, right? That's what we discussed about with things like ADHD or even mindfulness is when your brain works as a choir, oftentimes it can work better. Mm -hmm. So, right, the basses will start singing with the altos, the soprano takes over and says, let's go that way. An example of this neural network is N-acetylcysteine, that's something in your brain to regulate neurotransmitters, receives information from your basal amygdala and ventral tegmental areas, that's also in your midbrain, right? Your midbrain, of course, equals fear and safety. Mm-hmm. And if your NAC is impacting this, that's the N-acetylcysteine, it's NAC for short, if that's impacting this, it could be a modulation of decisions, it could make making choices hard. And they're seeing some evidence that this is lower than normal, both by defined by this study and by an early study. And they're specifically looking at this because of a focus on circadian rhythms. You're going to see that come up a lot in what people looked at for the brain because we're looking at that cycling, right? Mm. So this potentially impacts a higher desire for drugs, a decreased need for sleep, and wanting new and exciting things to happen. Can increase hyperactivity or depression as hypothesized. Seems like it could have some suggestions based on what we're seeing for bipolar. Sure. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So Ferrari et al. is stating, quote, emerging evidence has shown that bipolar disorder is accompanied by activation of immune inflammatory pathways. So what they're really looking at is microphages, which are responsible for your immune response, right? Mm-hmm. And they're arguing this and microglia increase inflammation. So basically your body's overworking. Gotcha. And this can lead to bipolar disorder is their argument. They're Mm. specifically stating this is due to, quote, chronic activation and desensitization of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, our old friend HPA axis. Oh, that's in our midbrain, right? Yes. So hypothalamic, right? Your hypothalamus. Yep. Which is kind of your brain's thermometer checking to see how everything is going. Right. And pituitary and adrenal are what get activated when you're in fight or flight. Yes, that's right. Like stress is is an activation of that, which sends a cycle down through your body, causing your breath to change, your muscles to change, because it's basically saying it's go time. Oh, yeah, which makes sense because Mm -hmm. uh, the brain is inflamed. (laughs) Yes. That was an extremely simplified way to say that. (laughs) It makes sense. Basically, they're also saying this is related to the susceptibility of patients' response to stress. So stress, as we know, bad for Mm. you, specifically bad for you because stress is meant to be something we experience on the short term. We experience it. It's done. We call it good, right? So in caveman days, we'd experience stress. Cortisol would dump into our system, making us more effective for the things we need to do, right? That HPA access was activating and we could get out of there or kill the saber-toothed tiger. Sure. And then we'd be done. But we don't have saber-toothed tigers. We have all sorts of other things that cause us to stress out that isn't a short response. Right. But your body responds the same way. So HPA axis flips on, you're in this fight or flight system, cortisol is pouring into your system. Cortisol, great on the short term, terrible on the long term. Sort of like running the Starship Enterprise at warp 10 will cause the thing to fall apart eventually, right? (laughs) Like you can't do that. You can't, for the same reason, you can't drive your car at 150 miles an hour because it's gonna just kill it like you can't run your body like that too so they're saying all of this is causing inflammation and that potentially is damaging that hpa access in a way that can lead to bipolar disorder that being said they are straight up owning that a their sample size is too small and their patients were medicated and that makes it harder to research because it's then difficult to look at what's bipolar and what's the medication and how do we split the two apart. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. I get that. 
So then we get into something called HCRTs. Schmidt et al. is arguing that this is caused by a loss of hypocretins, which they abbreviate to HCRTs. Okay. And these are hypothalamic neuropeptides. So again, connected to your hypothalamus, right? Mm-hmm. Brain's thermometer is regulating if things are okay. And if that's off, it can cause some issues. Oh, boy. Specifically, they're arguing this is causing issues with sleep and alterations to how you're feeling. So they're saying this is throwing off your circadian rhythm. There's a switch between vigilance, hyperarousal, and they're also arguing this is causing that reward-seeking and addictive behavior. Wow. That would make a lot of sense, too, because as someone whose circadian rhythm is pretty on point, I struggle to even stay up past like 2 a.m. And so to imagine somebody who can just be so on and so, dare I say, ignorant of their circadian rhythm, it makes sense now because their circadian rhythm is not connected. No. It's not plugged in. And we see impacts to circadian rhythms in a couple of diagnoses. Like sleep is huge. If you're not sleeping right, something is wrong in your brain. If you take nothing away from this episode, please understand that, right? (laughs) I say as somebody who sleep is a struggle. Cool, cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) But we see this with a lot of different things like anxiety can affect your sleep. Trauma can affect your sleep. Bipolar clearly affects your sleep. ADHD, there's a whole lot of things that can throw off your circadian rhythm, including time zone changes and traveling and a variety of things, right? Yes. But an important thing for some diagnosis is not only do we see that adjustment to circadian rhythms, but we can also see people who don't need sleep. Who, I mean, they do because your body desperately needs sleep. Your brain desperately needs sleep. All of you need sleep. But what we'll see on presentation is they're surviving on one or two hours of sleep like they've had eight to nine. So they're literally just going and going and going. I saw a patient do this who was a very tiny child, right? Like just all the time, no sleep whatsoever and looked to be otherwise like unaffected. That's not true. Even if you feel like you're unaffected by a lack of sleep, I promise both your brain and your body are severely impacted by a lack of sleep Mm -hmm. and can cause major issues down the road because that's how we heal. Oftentimes that's how we learn. That's how we process. That's how we do a lot of things. Sleep is super necessary. Yeah. But for these diagnoses, it can seem like sleep is not needed because the circadian rhythm is so impacted. Okay. Wild. That's a great clarification. Thank you. No problem. So Harrison, Geddes, and Turnberg argue that bipolar disorder is due to, quote, at least in part, an ion channelpathy in which aberrant calcium signaling is important. So what's an important thing to know about the brain is an electronic signal speeds down an axion. It opens up pores that let calcium ions rush into the cell. And that calcium lets the neuron know that it's time to release neurotransmitters. So sending your DMs, your phone calls, your texts to say, let's go do things. Gotcha. So they're saying that this is impacted and they're arguing that this is the case because they know this calcium signaling is specifically impacted by lithium, which is used for the treatment of the disorder. And thus they're arguing this must be an important thing to bipolar. Gotcha. That's fair. That's a fair assumption or guess dare I say. Yep. The one place where I did see a lot of cohesion was around BDNF. So that is a brain-derived neurotropic factor, is BDNF. Is that a place? Is that a pathway? Is that a neuron? Is that a... Yep. So brain-derived neurotropical factor is a molecule found in your hippocampus, your amygdala, your 
cerebellum and your cerebral cortex. Okay. Plays a major role in neuroplasticity. <gasps> and so in specifically, the reason for that is because we know it helps strengthen the connection between neurons. So it's helping you build new neural pathways and strengthen those so your brain can be plastic and change and adapt. Awesome. Really so, cool. BDNF, super important. Souza et al. stated that in bipolar disorder, lower BDNF levels were seen in both depression and manic episodes, specifically impacting the severity of these episodes. And an increase in BDNF was showing improvement of manic symptoms and an increase of gray matter and general overall better cognitive functioning. Lithium, it turns out, can impact BDNF, helping to regulate this. Interesting. I want to make sure I understand this because whenever I hear terms that I'm super familiar with, I'm like, oh, okay, how does that actually come into play here? You had talked about how with BDNF, it's super important for neuroplasticity and just strengthening connections between neurons in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying that for someone with mania, we are not seeing strong connections. And then they take lithium to support strengthening those connections. Yes. Awesome. So Christian Brom also looked at increasing BDNF seems to induce mania and argued that BDNF is the cause of it. Oh, interesting. And they looked at this in mice, specifically looking at the positive impacts of melatonin and bipolar, helping again with those circadian rhythms, as well as specifically looking at conjunctions of other therapies as a lack of sleep exacerbates those symptoms and an increase in sleep helps decrease the symptomology. They also looked at how exercise can increase BDNF in your hippocampus, which positively impacts your mood. Just some more guess and check. I love it. Well, I don't, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So looking at some of the bigger parts of the brain that we often talk about at this podcast, more familiar stuff, we can also look at dorsolateral and prefrontal cortex, which we're often familiar with. We've talked about those a few times, right? We're talking about your prefrontal cortex all the time. Yes. And we've kind of talked about this sort of being like your manager. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. It's kind of a mid-manager who's saying like, maybe we should focus on this thing or the other thing, right? Absolutely. So... Almost a voice of reason in a way. Yeah. So Clark and Sahakian are looking at these kind of bigger parts of your brain and argue that your dorsolateral and your ventrolateral prefrontal cortex are impacted as people with bipolar show issues with executive function. They're looking at this area as there's often an issue with attention shifting. As we remember from a few episodes in the season, right, your dorsolateral can help with that saying your brain should be focusing on this or not, right? Yeah. And specifically they're focused on, quote, cold executive processing, and hot processing, cold from dorsolateral and hot from orbital prefrontal. And they're stating these are different based on emotions versus decision making versus impulse control. And they have stated that they've seen this in post-mortem studies of people with bipolar. So specifically the anterior cingular cortex, as we remember from before as well. We talked about that at the beginning of the season. And that acts as a bridge between attention and emotion, helps focus your attention, impacts your affect, helps you socialize, super highway to the limbic, paralimbic areas, specifically your amygdala and your nucleus acubens. Absolutely. I remember this was like, if the DLPFT is your manager, this was essentially how the manager's message gets to the midbrain, which is in a panic and needs to calm down. Can absolutely be singing together. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. What they're seeing is a reduction 
in this area in the brain and a gray matter reduction in the prefrontal cortex. And they looked at functional imaging studies, seeing this reduction of blood flow around that orbital frontal. So same area, right? Yeah. We talked about orbital is connected to ventral frontal cortex, connected to the ACC, like they're all in that around that same area. And looking at, quote, a blunted activation of the right lateral orbital frontal cortex, which means there's less control of a human's inhibitions i.e. gambling all night, even if it takes away my rent money, still sounds like fun. Mm -hmm. And in bipolar depression, we see a decrease of prefrontal activity and an increase of our old friend, the amygdala, right? Because as we remember from depression, amygdala is activated and your brain can't stop worrying and so it cycles and it gets into this absolutely secular rumination. Yes, makes sense. However, there is a significant lack of research on bipolar depression and they own this. We appreciate that. Frango also reports on the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingular cortex, similar as to the study before, and specifically looking at a connection between bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Ooh. Because we're talking also, remember, from the beginning of this episode, sometimes within bipolar, we see psychosis. Yes. And so they were really looking at a distortion in reality. They're also citing your dorsal lateral for executive functioning issues and, quote, task-dependent networks. And showing how this is impacted by your prefrontal cortex, your amygdala, and all of this is increased in bipolar. So your brain is having trouble focusing on the things you might want to focus on and instead is, you are no longer in the driver's seat, right? Yeah. Wild. So Frango is also looking at those neural networks that we sort of started with the brain and stating the most evidence that we have for is a neural network, but... It's a neural network impacted by every neuropsychotic condition, including but not limited to TBI, Alzheimer's, etc. So hard to say there. They're also (laughs) saying, quote, it was assumed until recently that components, mental processing of cognitive control were realized within a topographically distinct region or networks. Attempts to map these networks have generated an expensive body of evidence, which, however, points to a domain general superordinate cognitive control network. Nonetheless, a fully mechanistic description of either psychotic disorder remains elusive. I.e., we have a lot of evidence, we don't really know what's going on. Like, that was a lot, but really it simplifies to it's complicated and we don't really know. Yeah, it kind of seems like we're just throwing darts at a dartboard, <laughs> you know? And it's like wherever the dart hits, we're like, uh, oh, that was going that. up. <gasps> Could be this. Oh, or wait, nope, maybe it's this. Absolutely. Could be this. Oh, you know what? There's a lot of this. It's mania. Yes. Oh, boy. Yeah. I've said that a lot this episode. (laughs) So this is going into this, what's going on? A lot? And we don't really know, right? Yeah. As we've already discussed in ADHD, right, we are talking a lot about neural networks here. Those are harder for us to study at this point. That adds to those complications. Mm -hmm. This is underdiagnosed. That adds to complications. And honestly, this is a diagnosis that, is taken very seriously. As we discussed in the beginning, we're seeing two things, either high levels of mania to the point of possible psychosis or hospitalization, that comes with risk of self or others, and a high risk of intense depression, which increases suicide risk. So another major complication is how do you ethically study this without having patients who are medicated? Bora also argues there are other several limitations. There's a lack of information, too many variables, including but not limited to drugs, alcohol use, medication impact. As we mentioned in the beginning, right, this is a diagnosis that individuals often struggle to follow through with taking medication, follow through with therapy, because 
medications can have side side effects and one of those side effects is losing the mania which can feel really good mm-hmm. fortunately the lows come with massive risk of suicide right one of the things we see as a byproduct of that is instead of taking medications people will self-medicate also with that lack of potential impulse uh, with all the things we've discussed that could be going on in- increasing the likelihood of wanting drugs and alcohol it's all exacerbated right mm. Bora is also arguing something that I would like to extrapolate on, which is one other complication, which is we have a lot of similar but not quite same symptomology locked into a diagnosis. So I'm going to go hard here and critique mental health in general. Mm. Remember that mental health came really before most of what we really know about neuroscience. Like neuroscience has in some way, shape or form existed somewhat as far back as even like renaissance days and before right Mm -hmm. we have had it for a while but we didn't really know all the things the brain did so saying we had neuroscience and saying we actually knew what was going on in the brain are two completely different statements (laughs) that sounds fair neuroscience has really taken off in the last hundred years and specifically in the last like 20 or 30 you know the more technology we have the more ability we have to actually study the brain the more we can figure out all the different things that are going on and we do know so much more today than we knew even just a few years ago because this field is just absolutely rapidly expanding right yeah however most of mental health kind of existed around hippocrates right kind of covered that and hasn't changed no and that's part of the problem is hippocrates as well as even the people who wrote the dsm-5 honestly i'm sorry what they're doing is they're saying here's a bunch of symptoms i'm gonna circle it together i'm gonna call it a diagnosis Mm. that is not how the rest of medicine really works medicine is more we have some biological understanding for what's going on we have biological tests to show more of what's going on not to say that in the rest of medicine we aren't guessing because a lot of times let's be real we are and we know it but there's a lot more in mental health which is one of the reasons it's sometimes struggled to be taken seriously i would argue that a complication of this right is say i'm going through and i'm seeing a bunch of symptoms and i'm circling it and i'm calling this a diagnosis and this a diagnosis and this diagnosis if i did that with the rest of your body a lot of the times i would get it right but not all the time Right. right for something really obvious i might be like yep this is spot on this is probably what's going on i'm gonna call it x turns out when i research x x is validating that yes this is all of what's going on because this is what i'm seeing right i think there are certain times where we have potentially not done this as well as we could hmm. and if we think about if we've potentially gotten the diagnosis wrong if we're adding in something that shouldn't be in there, if we're trying to stretch the category to be too many things, then how do we provide neuroscience for something that may not be accurate in the first place? And I'm not saying bipolar doesn't exist. I'm in no way, shape, or form saying that. What I'm saying is, as does honestly Bora and a lot of the other researchers, is we're taking this mental health first, neuroscience second, And we probably would be far more accurate if we had a little bit more neuroscience first, mental health second. Absolutely. So we need to know a little bit more about what's going on in the brain and then call the symptomology forward, not symptomology to brain. That makes a lot of sense because at first it can seem difficult to just try and diagnose mental health disorders at all in the first place because we're still just so confused about 
what the brain does, what play it has in why we do certain things or feel certain things or act certain ways. And it's kind of part of the reason why we started this podcast was to maybe learn a little bit more about that, but also diving into complications between like the brain versus the mind. Yeah. And so much of the mind is what is studied in mental health that I can see why it would be so difficult to diagnose. But exactly what you're saying is, sure, the mind is involved, but so is the brain. Because the two are interconnected. The brain affects the mind. The mind affects the brain. We still don't scientifically understand why we have the mind, how all of this works. We are operating a little blindly. Yeah. But we now have the technology and ways to study and see the brain, Mm -hmm. see the activity, see what lights spark up when certain feelings are had, when certain actions are taken. Yes. And maybe we can start following the lights to find a better pattern. Agreed. Which is exactly what you said. So I would say in talking about this episode, I I almost argued that we shouldn't do it because I really couldn't state with any clarity X caused Y, which is why we see Z. Right. I couldn't Mm -hmm. do that in this episode. And I wanted to keep it anyways because I think it helps highlight where we are still so far behind in medicine and specifically something that has such a massive, significant impact. Although prevalence might be low, severity can be incredibly high. Mm -hmm. We need to do better. And we need to do better by having more clarity, more vision, and more research. Absolutely. I think this is a beautiful bridge into our last section of the episode, but we will take a quick break before then. And knowing that even though sometimes the research can be super complicated, we may not always know exactly what's going on, I think it's safe to say there are always some takeaways. Of even from what we learned, there are things that we can do today, tomorrow, for ourselves, for others to help them live the best life that they can, live your own best life, and just connect better. Agreed. So we'll talk about that in just a bit. So in this last section, looking at the takeaways for this episode, we've touched a little bit on the field in general for mental health. I imagine there might be a little more we could share about that, but also I'd love to hear a little more of any support we can give to the clinicians listening to this episode, Mm -hmm. as well as just anyone in general who may have experienced mania, know someone who's experienced mania, and wants to be able to support them or themselves in a way. Absolutely. Let's start with the field, because that's kind of where our biggest critique is on this episode, is maybe one of the reasons we're struggling so much is because the field in general needs to do better. And specifically, I'm talking about the field of mental health, the field of research, the field of psychiatry. And Harrison Geddes and Turnbridge state, bipolar disorder is illustrating, quote, how psychiatry is being transformed by contemporary neuroscience, genomics, and digital approaches. 
These developments exemplify how genomics, neuroscience, and digital technologies are holding a new era for psychiatry. Mm. And that's a beautiful takeaway, in my opinion, to start with. They're literally saying diagnoses like bipolar disorder are highlighting where we need to grow knowledge, how we need to change knowledge, and how we need to look at this differently. They were really specifically looking at how the increase of technology is starting to allow for better, more accurate research into symptomology. Mm. Specifically looking at your phone and Bluetooth devices. This remote capture of self-reported symptoms as well as medical smart devices adding to the data of things like heart rate, human location, activity, other things in our environment to allow for more information, which is a struggle, right? A lot of times in psychology research and psychiatry research, it's so subjective that getting a little bit more hard data to not completely remove that subjectiveness, but to expand upon the body of knowledge is really important. That's huge. So this could lead us to more data-driven information, with, which increases our objectivity, allows for more personalized predictions. They will cite, however, this is still coming. This is still new. Mm. I was first learning about Bluetooth devices and their connections to smart devices and how they could f- do for the field of medicine less than three years ago. These are real new. So, quote, although the work is in an early state, it is likely ultimately to alter the view of the core phenotype of bipolar disorder with a greater role for a biological and quantitative data in bipolar diagnosis, prognosis, and management. So this could really change what we think of for bipolar, but allow for so much more information to get this right. They also argue that there's more need to know about how this can be genetically connected to other people in your family, right? To assist for earlier and more accurate diagnosis, which helps with, I don't know, more accurate research if we have more accurate diagnosis, as well as far better outcomes for a patient. They argue a need for additional research stating, quote, it's not always appreciated that bipolar disorder caused a global health burden comparable to that of schizophrenia has attracted considerably less research funding and interest from policymakers. They also state, quote, we would argue that for various reasons, bipolar disorder currently has a greater potential for transformative advances. More generally, bipolar disorder is a useful case study for illustrating how psychiatric disorders are blatantly embarking on the journey from being descriptive synonyms towards more neurobiologically grounded quantitative and digital phenotypes. What does that mean? We might have screwed this up and bipolar disorder might be the way that we start to realize where we screwed this up and how we can do better in the field of mental health completely. However, we need a lot more attention towards it, a lot more money towards it, and some more assistance with all of this. Great Great takeaway for the field of research in general. Perhaps this is something we should be looking at a lot more than we do. And I don't think we do because we look at, right, that very first thing we started with how prevalent is this and it's not. However, it might not be prevalent because it's really misdiagnosed and it's really underdiagnosed, right? Right. I will end the field of research with Frango who argues more research on things like bipolar disorder could create more of an era where neuroscience is employed to help with psychiatric disorders. But we need to go that route to get there. So all of these researchers are saying, we might not have gotten this right. We know that because the, the science is just all over the place, which means where we started from on this journey 
might have not been the first steps that we take, right? Like it's like you look yeah. to go and build something and you talk to an engineer and you're like, please build me this thing. If you're jarbled on what you're talking about for the thing you want to build, that engineer could be building things exactly as they're supposed to, but what they give you, you're like, I can't use that. Yeah, no kidding, because the communication in the very beginning is missed. Mm. So we need to be clear on what we're actually seeing so that we know how to research it, right? Yes. We need a lot more information to get there. Part of this means not misdiagnosing us. So a takeaway for clinicians, remember that this exists. <laughs> I don't know about you, but honestly, my I'm going to be real transparent here. My clinical training for bipolar disorder was... Let's start with what yours was. <laughs> oh, very much nothing. The only thing I can remember at all was if we learned anything about bipolar, it was get them on medication or send them to somebody who knows more about it. Yep. I, the one thing I remember is the takeaway from my one of my licensure tests, which was if on lithium, then bipolar, right? Like literally that was a study point and that's about all we got. We did, I, I, yeah, both you and I, I'm guessing, did not get a whole lot on this diagnosis. Like, one of the things I didn't know was if you're seeing depression, make sure to assess for bipolar. Like, that's an important thing. That I discovered a couple years into my practice, if I remember right, because I was reading neuroscience and because I was specifically reading Dan Siegel. And that was an eye-opener to me, and it's it's not as prevalent in the field of medicine as it should be in terms of... Depression is so common. It's why we started the season with it. And as clinicians, we're like, ah, depression. It's honestly also a little bit more socially acceptable. And it's a severity thing, right? It's why we started the season with it is because depression is, is a thing clinicians need to take seriously because I can't treat you if you're dead. Yes. So I've got to take that seriously, right? That being said, depression, as we started that episode, can be found in a lot of other diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Trauma. It is specifically part of the symptomology of trauma. It is part of the symptomology of bipolar. If we don't look any further, we might only be seeing part of the picture. So a really, really important thing that I used to train clinicians on a lot is when you're diagnosing, also talk about what you've ruled out and why. You should be talking about what you're seeing. You should also be talking about what you're not seeing because what that's showing is how your brain is thinking as a clinician. That is a key, crucial, and important part to any diagnosis. Don't just say, oh, I saw X, it must be X. No, as we talked about with House, right? They do that all the time. Mm -hmm. They're rarely correct the first time out. In fact, I don't think they've ever been correct on a single episode the very first time out. <laughs> like, sorry. So own that, right? Say, I, I came in, patient said, I'm dealing with depression. Cool. I assessed for depression. I also assessed for everything else that could be connected to depression because that's a crucial part of making sure that you're getting a whole picture of a patient and everything they might be dealing with. Yeah. Really great advice. Don't just take your gut and run with it. Don't be quick. Don't be lazy. Really assess. Really get as much information as possible. Make sure you're asking, is there anybody else in your family who's dealt with bipolar? Have you had any of the symptomology to show that you're cycling in any way, shape, or form? Anything's with psychosis, anything's with mania, right? Really make sure that you're digging in. And for people who are individually concerned about this, again, remember that one of the reasons this is misdiagnosed is because people with bipolar go in when they're dealing with depression. They often don't go in when they're dealing with mania, because mania 
honestly, to quote a lot of patients, can be enjoyable. So it is important to own, hey, I have periods in my life where I don't need as much sleep or, hey, I have periods of my life where I feel a lot more reckless or I've done risky behaviors or I feel like everyone is out to get me. Try to make sure to include information that sometimes you may not think as medically relevant. Don't just include it if your provider asks information. One of the things I thought was really interesting as a clinical supervisor is I would train clinicians and I would train clinicians partially by doing a lot of role plays. I once role played a patient I made up that was a conglomeration of a bunch of patients I'd seen over the years, right? And I role played that same patient to something like five different therapists and got five different diagnoses. Part of that is different providers got different information out of me based on what they were asking. Because as patients, we don't take as much directive in mental health as we can and should. You are an equal partner in this relationship. Whether your therapist ever tells it to you or not, you know more about yourself, your life, and your body than they have ever shot in hell of ever understanding. Remember that when mental health really works, it's when a therapist and a patient work together in partnership. If your therapist doesn't get that, perhaps you should find a new therapist. You are an important part in your diagnosis. You are a critical part in your treatment. You are a critical part in your own care. Speak up. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. This podcast is created and produced by Lane and Sherris with music by James Austin. To learn more about this episode, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to info at brainblownpodcast.com or reach out via social media to connect. <laughs>